I had my children on the floor. I was on my favorite blanket that my grandmother gave me on the floor like a cat. And I realized in that moment, the potential of what our bodies can really do as women. Like I could feel his head. I could do my own internal, like, yeah, his head, I could feel it. I was in tears. I was just in tears and overwhelmed with gratitude. Hi, and welcome to the Natural Birth Podcast, the podcast that is bringing embodied birth wisdom from women from all over the world sharing their natural birth stories. Don't forget to subscribe and download so that you can always have access to these empowering and positive natural birth stories. Hi, my name is Anna, also known as the Spiritual Midwife, and I am the Natural Birth Podcast host. I'm a midwife and a childbirth educator, and I assist women in optimizing their chances of having an empowering and natural birth experience and a nourishing and healing postpartum. I offer holistic birth preparation and postpartum online courses worldwide for the conscious mama wanting to prepare emotionally, mentally, physically, and spiritually for her birth and for her postpartum. And if you want to know more about me and what I do in the world, then visit me at thenaturalbirthcourse.com. If you had a natural and empowering birth experience that you would like to share with the world, then you can email me at midwife at gmail.com and maybe your story will be featured on the Natural Birth Podcast. Now let's dive into today's episode. Today we have Rachel Reed. Rachel is a midwife and doctor of philosophy who's committed to promoting physiological birth and women's rights. She has just finished her book Reclaiming Childbirth as a Rite of Passage, Weaving Ancient Wisdom with Modern Knowledge. And that will soon be available on her award-winning blog, Midwife Thinking, or wherever you buy books. Today, we will hear about her two birth stories and also dive into her wisdom about birth and about reclaiming birth as a rite of passage. Hi, Rachel, and welcome to the Natural Birth Podcast. How are you going today? I'm good. Thank you for inviting me. Such a pleasure having you on this podcast. I can't wait to take part of your enormous wisdom that you hold about all things birth and we're going to dive into birth as a rite of passage today but before we do that we're actually also going to hear about your two birth stories the birth experiences that you've had and I know your first one was a medicalized one and your second was a natural one with exclamation marks um so let's dive into that and just share with us a little bit about yeah birthing for you and how that informed you and maybe informed you to become a midwife maybe I don't know Mm, okay so this is interesting because I never used to talk about my birth experiences when I was a practicing midwife on purpose because I didn't want I did after if women weren't my clients but if they were my clients I wouldn't kind of talk about my own births because I didn't want to influence their decision making or you know influence them in any way but now I kind of almost feel I'm freer to do it because I'm not practicing as a midwife anymore. So, but it's still, it's still kind of, I don't know, they're quite private. Your birth experiences are quite private, aren't they? But anyway, mm. I shall share with you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. So my first baby I had him when I was 18. Um, so still in that real, you kind of look at rites of passage, I was still in that real maiden phase, you know, that real rebellious maiden phase of not quite knowing who you are at that age you know you don't know who you are um and I kind of approached it very much um how I'd approached my menarche so you know when you look at rites of passage you you often notice a pattern in how you approach things which is your creative pattern which is you know for me it's to learn intellectually about things um 
So, you know, there wasn't really this big spiritual connection. There was just, the, right, I need to learn how my body works. This is really interesting. How does it all work? How am I going to do this? Taking, con- you know, I was, I was going to be in control of all of this. And I think I actually read Miriam Stoppard's book, <laughs> which was horrendous. But anyway, <laughs> at the time, it was really interesting, you know, the, the pictures of the baby growing. So I kind of approached my birth very much from the perspective of, I can do this. You know, my mother had given birth. It wasn't a big deal. Just like my menoc wasn't a big deal. This is just something the body does. Very matter of fact. Mm. Um, And of course I can give birth. Like, why wouldn't I be able to? And I'm just going to learn about how my body works. And I'm just going to go in to the hospital and give birth because I didn't know there's any other options than hospital. Um, Because even though this was in the UK where home birth is free on the NHS, it's not necessarily offered. You don't necessarily know about it unless you've got a midwife or a GP who offers it to you or you know about it. Mm. So um, I headed off into hospital with my then 18-year-old partner, who I'm actually still with, my husband now. Oh, well, really? What a story. That's amazing. Brilliant. <laughs> I, I love that nowadays. I know. We've, we're very different people, but we still kind of fit together. Wow. And so, you know, here's me, an 18-year-old young woman with my 18-year-old partner, who, you know, men at that age are even less, <laughs> bless him. Yeah. Um, you know, men in the birth space to begin with is kind of a really interesting concept. But, you know, anyway, so in we went and just had the kind of standard hospital kind of birth at that time from you know there's me going in thinking well you just go into labor and you have a baby and I'm just going to do it naturally I don't really want pain relief because of course I can do this and I wasn't really in quote established labor so I got sent home a couple of times by the time I was deemed to be in established labor I'd already been given opiates because you know I wasn't in established labor so I just need these opiates to to relax um, and I was put into the, um, it was called the early, this is 30 years ago. Um, so in the UK, it was the early, early labor room. It was a basic award that you were put on when you weren't in proper labor and you weren't allowed to be in a birth room yet. Right. What did that look like? Was that just well, like was, a waiting room? Yeah. Well, it had actually four beds in it. So oh. you could, there was women coming in and then going out because then they were in labor. So there's me right. kind of. So you were like, you were in early labor with other women in kind of a ward yeah. situation. Yeah. How strange. So there was a beanbag in there because I was, I was sitting on the beanbag. So I was like completely out of it and like, because <laughs> I'd had opiates, you know, I had diamorphine, which is essentially heroin. So I was kind of <laughs> feeling great, um, <laughs> but it was just a bit kind of what's going on. Yeah. And then it must have been a designated assessment time because you also didn't get designated, you know, a midwife one-on-one because you weren't in labor, so you didn't need one. And it's interesting because in my mind, this was a midwife, but I've actually got my notes and it wasn't a midwife. It was an obstetrician who came in and did a vaginal examination. And at the same time as doing the vaginal examination said, and I'll just pop your waters, pop. Oh, gosh. Um uh, no discussion, no risks and no. benefits. <laughs> here you were like up, you know, on opioids and, oh, here comes yeah. the water. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was oh, okay. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I broke my waters and said that I was seven centimetres and I'd be having a baby soon. Oh. And then wandered off. Huh. I'm going, okay, well, that's good news, I guess. I'm going to have a baby soon. But with the waters being broken, then it just got full. I just was obviously transitional because then I just kind of lost my ability to manage the pain, just was, you know, still in this early labor room, was completely losing the plot, you know, just typical transition, you know, freaking out. And just knew I couldn't do this for, for some reason, I thought it was going to be another, a long, long time. And I couldn't do it any longer without an epidural. So um, I wondered, oh, I'd asked for it. Somebody could ask for an epidural and I was told it was too late and that they, were, they must have been getting a room ready for me to go into the official birth room or something and then was left alone again. And so I wandered along the corridor to the staff room and knocked on the door and somebody opened the door and they all stand there with mugs. I can remember them all like with mugs of tea and coffee and had a contract. I just had to stop and kind of hold onto the door frame while they all watched me. 
And then when the contraction had gone, I just said, I need an epidural now. And I got one. Um, so I had an epidural. And of course, then everything just completely slowed down and stopped. And it was another six mm. hours. Oh, um, but I slept because I'd been awake for two two nights then. So I slept. Um, and then it came to pushing this baby out. And I actually used my um, CTG trace as a teaching tool now because it's pretty it's actually really interesting because um it just is a classic ctg trace of a baby who is actually a healthy full-term baby um being given too much syntocinon as in con- with too many contractions because they then put up syntocinon because obviously yeah. everything slowed down so i've got syntocinon epidural and then they got me up and pushing and i was having like six or seven contractions in 10 minutes so oh you meant three because you need that resting phase yeah. The uterus needs to rest in order to reperfuse the placenta with oxygen to get to the baby. So you kind of see this CTG trace of like contraction after contraction after contraction. Um, and then the contractions actually never were at the point where you would put syntocinon up. They were always four to five and 10 without syntocinon. But anyway, put syntocinon up and then you could just see this huge over contraction happening. And you could mm. see the baby's heart rate responding to it. It was fascinating. You know, it was kind of, it was responding with early decelerations, which is a healthy response to contraction. And then it was just getting more and more difficult for that heart rate to recover. And then, you know, then the baby was obviously getting hypoxic and then it started to get a higher, 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 higher heartbeat. Um, so by the mm. time the baby was born, we had a very high heartbeat and, and over contraction. And that's probably why they said, oh, we're going to going to do an instrumental birth and started setting up for that because we need to get the baby out because the baby's getting distressed because we're putting up this synthetic drip that's causing you to have i can't believe that they didn't stop the syntocin when they saw that you're having way too many contractions first of all and i mean all mamas listening to this now this is you know, we're two midwives chatting <laughs> just so you guys know that, you know, this is actually something that is important to know because this is normal practice. If you do get an epidural during labor, it might slow your labor down and you might need this syntocinum drip. And there are risks with this, both obviously the epidural and with the syntocinum. Did anyone talk to you about these risks before they gave you the epidural and the syntocinum? No, probably because I was demanding the epidural by the time <laughs> I got it. And I'm sure that they did do that. You know, the anesthetist stands there and runs mm. through the wrists. And by that point, you don't care okay. because you just want the epidural. Mm-hmm. So I didn't really listen to any of those risks. Um, and certainly, I, I didn't even know I had syntocinon until I got my CTG. And then kind of, I didn't really, I hadn't connected. Maybe they did, but it certainly wasn't something I'd remember. Mm. Um, and yeah, and now, you know, looking at that trace, when I show student midwives that trace, the first thing they say is turn the syntocinon off. You know, I don't tell them what happens at the end. I just say, at this point, what would you do? And they all say, oh my God, turn the syntocinon off. So, you know, hopefully practice. <laughs> that was 30 years ago. Um, so of course the baby's now showing signs of distress and so they're setting up for an instrumental and I can just remember this doctor doing a vaginal exam and I had an epidural bear in mind so I couldn't you know I could feel stuff but I could, it wasn't certainly wasn't painful but I, the, it was so uncomfortable this vaginal examination by this obstetrician who was obviously digging about to find out exactly where the baby was because he thought mm-hmm. he was going to then pull it out and it was I just thought it uh, he, this is not happening. I am getting this baby out before this man comes anywhere near me with those instruments. So he said 15 minutes. He went off. They were all setting up. And I asked for the squatting cushion. When I'd done a hospital tour, they'd showed me this squatting cushion, which is like, I think they've been banned now, if I don't know why. Um, it was like a soft cushion that you could sit on on the bed with handles that you could pull up on. Brilliant. I asked for that. And they obviously dusted it off out of a cupboard somewhere because they're a bit annoyed. Um, and I just went for it and, you know, full on, they were directing pushing anyway, which you could see, which is then again, stresses the baby out even more. So I'm kind of, so I'm now adding to it really, really well pushing because I'm determined to get this baby out. Mm. So we're all just stressing this baby out, trying to get him out. Oh, um, and he came out before they put the, <laughs> I don't know whether we were going to do Vontus or forceps. I have no idea. They didn't get that far. Um, and he came out and I'd asked for, it was in my birth plan. I'd asked for skin to skin at birth. Now, 30 years ago, that was not the norm. So they all thought I was a weird hippie because I'd right. asked for that. But they did it. So, you know, they put this baby who, you know, you pass meconium 
on his way out. So I was covered in like all of my belly was just covered in poo. He was covered in poo, but they did put him on me. And, you know, there he was skin to skin. So I got what I wanted. And he was kind of now, you see, it's interesting because at the time I hadn't had no midwifery knowledge. What I now know is that he had respiratory distress because Mm. of what had happened. Um, So they whipped him off, resuscitated him, you know, and then put him back on me, but he was still kind of grunting. And when I asked about it, they said, oh, it's because he's mucousy. So in my head, I'd stuck his mucousy when it wasn't. It was because he was still respiratory, you know, he was still experienced distress because of birth he'd had. So after a pretty short while, they put him in there, said we need to take him to nursery to observe because he's mucousy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Not saying because we've stressed him out so much, he's kind of grunting. He's having a bit of, you know, he's having to work hard to breathe. So off he went. And then, you know, it's like they're on a bed covered in baby poo with no baby. And then all my relatives, oh, I think the relatives are coming just before he'd gone off and had a look at him. <laughs> and then I got taken to the postnatal ward and it was getting on evening. And I can remember waking up in the middle of the, oh, I didn't really sleep much. I remember waking up at one point, a midwife passing me this little picture. I still got it of um, this Polaroid picture that they put the wrong date on and crossed out of this baby that looks like um, one of the Romanian orphans that was on TV all the time at that point. Oh, you know, God. with this like knitted hat that wasn't properly on. It was a bit sideways. Oh, God. <laughs> Just like, here's a picture of your baby. And I went off and I'm like, what where is the baby (laughs) where is the baby oh my goodness so uh, I set off along the corridor to find the baby because I wanted to feed him breastfeed him which again was not was pretty unheard of in that part of England and certainly if you were 18 and found the nursery and found the baby and (laughs) knocked on (laughs) knocked on the door and the midwife who's looking after the nursery was really annoyed that I'd like just rocked up and kind of into her territory. you come and look at your baby? How dare you come and see your baby? What? I asked, to breast, I asked to breastfeed him and it was like, oh, he's too tired to breastfeed. You have to bottle feed him and, you know. So long story short, I ended up discharging myself from hospital, having still not really sorted out breastfeeding and just worked it out when I got home. Brilliant. So that rite of passage was, you know, you learn something about yourself and about the culture every mm. time you go through a significant rite of passage. And, you know, that kind of transformed me into a mother, but it, and it also taught me not to trust other people, which is a message, <laughs> yeah. which is, a, which is a not a good message, but was, you know, if you want to do something, you need to own it yourself and do it yourself and not rely on other people to do 100%. it 100 um, and what a great takeaway like far out such a a gem it's so true though and it's still true it's still true in our in our maternity service today you know there's so many women who do just that just what you just shared you know who get pregnant and you know it was great that you had the instant thought that I can do this because my mom did this and no problem. I have a baby. I mean, most people actually have the opposite, like, oh shit, you know, how can I do this? And can I do this? And I don't trust my body or I'm really fearful of birth. So, I mean, that was a great thing that you had that. Probably because I was 18 and a bit, you know, when you're 18, you can do anything, you know, everything. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. You're invincible. But I mean, that was a great thing to have, but then also it's very common just what you had for the, you know, for first babies first mamas having their first baby to yeah to just think that oh I'll just go into hospital and they'll take care of me and I'll have a baby mm. and I can't you know tell tell you how many times I tell women to do your research you know find out what you want claim this birth claim this rite of passage right and understand what you're getting yourself into and what you want for your labor and birth what the options are yeah and that's about you know and it it differs depending on your choices around where you're having your baby but if you're birthing in a facility then you really need to kind of learn you know I call it learn the map learn you know and as a care providers you should be sharing the map of in this facility this is the kind of thing that we normally do is that something you'd be wanting to have you know don't assume that the practices will align with what you want they might a lot of the time they do nowadays you know in birth center settings etc they'll they are pretty much, you know, 
aligned with evidence-based physiological birth but if they're not you need to know that if you if you know that in this hospital it's common practice to do x y or z and that's something you don't want then that's something to write in your birth plan yeah but it needs then that's why you need to really know where you about the place you're going to birth in and the people who are going to be with you or if you want a natural birth and but you're booked into uh you know, a private hospital where the cesarean rate is 70%, you know, maybe it's not the right place for you. Mm. Exactly. How are you going to navigate that? Yeah. Yeah. They're really good at doing cesareans, but maybe they're not that good at facilitating natural birth. All right. Well, let's dive into your second birth then. Had you then learned something more when you got pregnant the second time? Uh, so it was about th- three and a half years between my kids. Um so I'd done a bit of growing up, <laughs> had to, but <laughs> a baby will, uh, will grow you up. Um, yeah. So this next birth, I kind of approached and he said, and I, like most women, you don't often, so once you've had your baby, you often don't reflect on the birth experience until you're kind of heading into your next rite of passage. You're kind of heading into that next and that you know, then you start to reflect on the lessons you learned and what you needed need to bring forward into this next rite of passage so it wasn't really until so this time I got hold of a Sheila Kitzinger book mm. on birth it probably would have been second hand or something so I had absolutely no money at that point um mm. so my partner then was doing an art degree and I was working um doing admin and desktop publishing and stuff so uh so, yeah, so I had a different book. You know, the Miriam Stoppard book was very much a how your body works. Sheila Kitzinger was like another level. It was, you know, that this is a rite of passage. There's more to this than just a baby coming out of your body, that, you know, you're becoming a mother, all that stuff. And really kind of reflected on what it was I wanted from this birth. And I actually just wanted to have a natural birth. I just wanted to not have all that stuff. I just wanted to have a natural birth. And I knew that if I was in a hospital setting and I knew that there was an epidural, if I knocked on a door, that I would ask for an epidural. I knew I would um, once I was in that transitional phase. Um, So really, the only way I could not do that was to have the baby at home. And then that would take out all of that external influence on my birth and it would just be me. Um, so I switched, I kind of went and asked for a home birth, I think I was halfway through the pregnancy and at the, in the end on the NHS in the UK, it's free. So that wasn't a huge deal. You know, my midwife went, yep, great. Um, I had a little team of midwives looking after me and that's what I planned to do. And that's what I did. And I was kind of, as I was saying to you, you know, it was pretty, it was a a pretty boring birth really. (laughs) It was a, just, yeah, I'd kind of approached it just going, okay, I know I can do this because um, I did it despite everything last time. Mm-hmm. And I just really want to do this at home. Um, and another big thing was I didn't want the baby taken away. I didn't want anybody else taking my So that was a big thing for me. And because I'd been told that the reason that he was taking away was because he was mucousy. I I talked to my midwives about this and kind of said, oh, when the baby's born, I want the baby to be kind of upside down for a bit so that the fluid drains. And the midwives are like, looking at me like I'm bonkers because it's, <laughs> it's actually, and I went, okay. So I had that on my birth plan. Because in my head is I didn't yeah. want to transfer because I had a mucousy baby because I hadn't realized that the last time it was because mm. of distress, not mucus. Mm. Um, so, yeah, so I'd planned that um I'd also negotiated with the midwives so um in terms of the birth of the placenta so at home births in the UK so the good thing about the UK is home birth free and it's on the NHS the bad thing about the UK free home birth service is that is that a lot of the guidelines and practices from the hospital just get brought into the home Mm. um it's so I knew that um active management was the standard right particularly at home birth because they want a hemorrhage giving you an injection when the baby's born to get the placenta out and to manually do yes extraction placenta. yeah so that was an interesting kind of because i just wanted to do everything naturally that's where it, but it was interesting because i kind of had to really think about it and think about okay so these midwives 
aren't comfortable with physiological birth of the placenta. Mm. I'm not comfortable with active management as standard. And what is it about active management I'm not com- com- comfortable about? And it was mostly the giving the injection before the cord. I wanted, you know, I wanted a full perfusion of the baby, which again, in those days was a bit odd. Ooh, yeah, um, super hippie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was totally hippie. Um, but I wanted the baby to have full blood volume. So I didn't want the cord cutting until it had finished pulsing. I wasn't actually that bothered about the medication at the time. So I negotiated with the midwives because I didn't want them stressing while I was, and I didn't want somebody who didn't really know how to support a physiological birth of the placenta in my space, worrying and interfering with the physiological birth of the placenta. Because, you know, you need those real calm, relaxed environment for that to work. So I, so I negotiated with them and said, you can give me the injection after the cord's finished transferring the blood so that's Ooh. what we did so there's a bit of negotiation i also had gas and air there so it wasn't completely natural but i didn't get around to using it until right at the end after and as i had anticipated so i went into labor actually my waters broke in the early hours of the morning so i contacted this is how it's boring because it's just like the midwives must have loved me <laughs> so i contacted the midwife just before she started her antenatal clinic and said my waters are broken i'll probably be having a baby today and she's like okay great i'll call in on my way to the clinic see how you're going um so she called in on her way to the clinic did this vaginal examination which is was probably pointless um you know, i wouldn't personally do that but anyway and said yeah well you know you're not in labor yet let's see what happens you might have to go into hospital if you don't go into labor within I think it was 24 hours or something at that point. I was just thinking, yeah, well, we'll, we'll work that out when that happens because I'm not going to go into hospital. And she went mm-hmm. off to a clinic and then came back at lunchtime, by which time I was, you know, having good, strong contractions, um, wandering about the house and I'd stopped eating cheese. So I was obviously in established labour. <laughs> in early labor, I was going to the fridge and you know having a bit of cheese here and there because I was like really excited that I could eat cheese again soon and I had cheese in the fridge I had um, brie in the fridge for afterwards <laughs> <laughs> and I can vividly remember like in the kitchen having a massive contraction leaning on the counter and just going oh my god I remember this why did I think I could do this at home you idiot but then thinking it was now too complicated to change my mind and have the baby in hospital because it was all set up for home. And then I had, then when transition hit, it was exactly the same thing. I was just furious at myself for having put myself in a position where I couldn't get an epidural. So that was my transition was spent, you know, internally beating myself up about, you know, what an idiot I was. I can't possibly do this without an epidural. Um, while sounding like a cow. Um, we lived in a little flat at the time, so we had to go and ex- explain afterwards to the neighbours. Um, <laughs> sounded like, so the cow you heard was me. Yes, exactly. Um, I wasn't actually particularly aware of that, and I was getting really annoyed by anybody moving in my field of vision when I had a contraction, Which so it was like musical statues. I'd have a contraction, <laughs> would be like nobody move until the contraction's finished otherwise I would kick off and go <laughs> so transition was fun and I think the second midwife so my my first my primary midwife had arrived at lunchtime and she was sitting eating a lunch in front of neighbors um with my partner who was my husband by that point so they're sitting watching neighbors now wandering about having contractions I can remember just at one point saying can you just turn the tv off because I now needed all the attention on me it was all about me now <laughs> turn yeah. the tv off this is serious and then I went into transition and just you know became that you know crazy um, woman that you do in transition which is all part of the all part of the plan and the second midwife arrived. And then I can remember them trying to take... Now, this is another thing about birth plans. Just be careful what you write and make it generic. Because I had written that I wanted to give... Thanks to Sheila Kitzinger, that I wanted to give birth <laughs> squatting. <laughs> right. And I wanted to guide the baby out myself. That was in my birth plan. This is what I wanted to do, right? Of course, yep. at the time, I didn't give a shit how this baby came out. I just needed it out now. Yeah. Um, so I was actually on all fours as I started to push the baby out and had my knickers on. And I can just remember the midwives and my husband trying to get my knickers off. And it was just like, no, 
because I thought if I kept them on, then the baby wouldn't come out and I didn't want the baby to come out. So I was <laughs> wanting the knickers to stay on. So the rational mind of a birthing woman. Don't you love it? I love it. <laughs> Transition's fabulous because you've got this, like you've got your limbic system, your instinctive brain's just full on working because that's where it is in labor. And then you get this surge of adrenaline that switches on your neocortex, but it doesn't properly work because you've still got your... So you've got this kind of dance between the neocortex, which is thinking part of your brain and your real instincts. And the two kind of don't connect particularly well. So you often have women just saying insane things, you know, like I'm going home now if they're in hospitals. Like, okay, see you later. Yes, totally. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Taking my bag, going, I'm not going to yes. have this baby. I changed my mind. <laughs> yeah. So, my, so mine was like, if I just don't take my knickers off, then it, the baby won't come out. <laughs> Do you want a natural birth mama? Then a natural birth course might be for you. Do you see birth as a rite of passage and an important and transformational event that you'd like to feel fully empowered in meeting? Are you like many other women realizing that it is time to take back your power as a birthing woman in the birth space and birth your baby your way? Would you like to feel calm and confident as you birth your baby with all the tools you need in order to meet the labor sensations naturally and be ready body, mind and soul? Do you deeply down know that your body was made to birth your baby and that you have all the inherent power and inner wisdom to do so? Are you looking for holistic midwifery wisdom and guidance to assist you and give you all the evidence-based information you need in order to feel fully sovereign in your decision-making around your pregnancy and upcoming birth? Then the Natural Birth Course is for you. Find out more at thenaturalbirthcourse.com. But anyway, they got my knickers off and they got me into the squat position. I'd asked to get in. We thinking, just what are you doing? Why are you, are you moving to... me? I'm perfect on all fours. Stop it. <laughs> just leave me alone. But it was in the birth plan. So then this baby's head comes out. I can remember just looking down. There's this blue head and she was crying, but not making a sound. That should have you know, warned me um, about what she'd be like. Yeah. So, she, so she's a little mouse, and it was a blue head. And I, the midwife said, do you want to touch the baby? Because I put it in my birth plan. And I was just like, no, just get it out. <laughs> oh, get it out. Um, so out she came. And, of course, they put her head down because I put that in my birth. She yes. needs to be upside down. So I'm like looking at <laughs> this baby's back, <laughs> just her back. And it was quite hairy. <laughs> but she was all hairy <laughs> the midwife said oh I think we found the missing link right so be careful what you say because women remember <laughs> but she did actually like a monkey so I'm looking at this furry back and I still don't know what she is and I'd assumed I was having a boy because I thought I intuitively knew what I was having because I knew the first time and I was right so this time I was right so we had a blue baby grow and a this was going to be a boy. You didn't have any girls' names picked. In those days, you weren't allowed to find out from Scan what you were having. Mm. So I'm looking at this fairy back, assuming I've got another boy. And then, I must have been minutes and minutes. And the midwife said, are you going to have a look and see what you've got? I thought, well, obviously a boy. So I lifted up this thigh, still upside down baby, and saw <laughs> what was not a vulva. <laughs> what was not a a ball sack it was obviously missing something so I put the leg down again I thought about it lifted the leg up again went, oh my god it's actually a girl it took me days to get over that that it was wow. a girl because I was just it just didn't fit with my image of what was going to happen as I was going to have two boys so it was just a massive like oh my god um and yeah so eventually she got turned the right way up and, and had a breastfeed but uh <laughs> and her brother who was three and a half at that point, had been taken out because I didn't want him in the birth space. I knew I'd probably scream and I didn't want to worry about him. So he, my mother had taken him to the cafe at the bottom of the street. So this is all happening just 
you know, midwife turns up for lunch. This happens before she has to leave, you know, before she's born three something in the afternoon, not long after neighbours. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and then my son came back and, you know, it's still daytime and the midwife could pack up and go. So they just spent a few hours there. Um, and, yeah, and I went to bed and had cheese um, and watched the Tour de France with the baby. Um, and watched the TV and, you know, so this theme of babies being removed actually goes all the way back kind of through my my red thread, my mother line to my mother's experience of birth with me because I was removed at birth and she thought I was dead for eight hours until they brought, wow. then, until she asked and then they said, oh, yes, of course you can see the baby and brought me in. And then I did the same thing with my son. Wow. So this was, you know, the same theme running through, which is I didn't want to have with my daughter. And when she, the day that she was born, a baby had been stolen from a hospital. So that was all over the news. The baby was eventually found, but, you know, so I'm, I've got this baby just going to, you know, that this theme's coming up again. It's not my baby, it's somebody else's baby. And nobody took that baby. So those were my childbirth rites of passage. And, yeah, both very different, and I wouldn't even I wouldn't say one was a better experience than the other in terms of, you know, every birth experience transforms you, makes you who you are, and they were both equally as valuable in, you know, me becoming who I am and teaching me about myself just in different ways. Absolutely, totally agree. Amazing. And with your placenta, so did you have then that kind of modified medical kind of active? birth of the placenta did they give you the injection and yeah they did and um, so they waited until the cord had stopped pulsing and she'd been turned the right way up <laughs> <laughs> so it was quite a, a long time in the scale of things from practice back then would have been to give it immediately on the birth of the baby yeah. um, and I can't even remember the birth of the placenta which is fairly common for women you know because mm. you're in that enchantment phase I call it where you, you know, yeah. you're interacting with the baby and you you're oblivious to that um but they um they would have um pulled the placenta out I just don't really have much memory of of any of that I do remember my son's response to his new sister which was he was not very particularly impressed with the baby but um he was very impressed with the placenta and he can remember looking oh it's pretty wow he thought the placenta was pretty but not the baby how interesting (laughs) What does he do today? Is he a butcher or something? <laughs> uh, no, he's he's a uh, yeah. But if you know him, you could you could he could probably see why he would say. <laughs> <laughs> he likes gory stuff, maybe. So, um, with the second one, did you keep your placenta? Was that something that you had read about or thought was? No, you see, you know, in those days. I feel like I'm really old saying that. So Jacob's placenta, he was born in my first baby in hospital. So I remember signing something um, that allowed them to basically sell my placenta to pharmaceutical companies. So his placenta would have been rubbed on somebody's face, I would imagine. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) And my daughter's placenta would have got packed up with the midwives and taken back to the hospital, which was the standard NHS birth is, you know, they come, they've got their bits and pieces, they clean up, tidy up, take all the stuff back to the hospital afterwards. So no, it wasn't on the radar then. Right. Beautiful. So if you had a first time mama in front of you right now, who's about to have her first baby and she really wants to have a natural and empowering birth experience. What advice or pearls of wisdom would you give to her? Oh, goodness me. Um, okay, so the, the book I've just written, I've actually put a chapter in called Preparation. So it's about rites of passage in the first phase, which I've added in because the classic anthropological phases of a rite of passage are separation, liminality, and integration. So I've added on preparation because we can anticipate having a baby you know Mm. as human women we know we're growing a baby we know we're going to have a baby so there's that kind of preparation for this for labor and birth and mothering and you know I think it really centers on uh, and uh, what I call it is cultivating self-trust 
So it's about building trust in self and how that looks to individual women will be completely different. You know, for me, I needed to know exactly how the body works in order to trust it. I have worked with women who just go, I don't want to know anything because that's going to confuse me and make me worry about whether things, I just actually want to not do that preparation. I want to engage in some different preparation. So there's lots of different ways of preparing to have a baby as you know, they're all over the, you just go on the internet, there's a million different ways to prepare to have a baby. Mm. Um, And it's up to that individual woman about what is it that she needs to do to build trust in herself. And that will, so really to pinpoint that, what is it that I need to build trust in myself? And that's not trust in yourself not necessarily trust in birth because birth can throw curveballs, you know, as we know, that's kind of how Mm. midwifery evolved was to be there to catch the (laughs) curveballs that it can sometimes, you know, a woman who's having a physiological birth doesn't need anybody there. Yes. She just needs love and, you know, Mm. anyone can provide that who knows her and loves her. Um, But the role of the midwife really evolved for the times when, natural birth becomes pathological you know it's mm. kind of and how to get that back on track or how to manage it mm. um so it's not about trusting birth but it's about trusting that you have everything you need to birth your baby and to navigate through whatever decisions and however it unfolds that you have the capacity to walk and take ownership of that and responsibility for it so i would say that that's kind of my my main um, my main advice to women is I don't advise any particular course or type of preparation. It's what what helps you to cultivate trust in yourself um, mm. to own your own rite of passage because this is about you transforming into mother. It's about your rite of passage. It's not about other people's. It's not about you know how somebody else chose to do it or how somebody thinks you should do it. Mm. Yeah, I love that. I love that. I think that's so important for women to to first of all see birth as a rite of passage and to also take responsibility for their own birth. And and I think yeah, and I think also to consider what will be happening around you while you're because you know, you you're going to animals just birth babies, human women just birth babies, but it's what happens around them that can kind of impact on that. So really to think about where you're going to have your baby and that's where the whole you know knowing the map or and having your care provider share the map and being honest with you about the location you're going to birth in it's not about fear it's not about you know oh this hospital's really bad it's like in this hospital it's the cultural norm to do these things because you know in any even in a hospital setting um they can't do something to you without your consent and there's ways to navigate through and get your wishes met it's about knowing what the culture is and how you can navigate so that's that's what care providers main job is I think in pregnancy it's about uh, and you know I call it nurturing nurturing self-trust in the woman you know reflecting that back to her you know asking her how the baby is instead of telling her how she is you know asking her whether what position the baby's in really placing her at the center so what you're doing there is kind of really reinforcing her trust in herself rather than her trust Mm. in the external expert Mm. Um, whereas you know a lot of antenatal care is grooming women to look to the external expert and to to look to external knowledge rather than mm. rather than within. Well, it's um, but not really to- built to foster, is it? I mean, you go in for a fifteen minute checkup, don't you? Most of the time, if you don't have your private kind of independent midwife, or maybe go through a birth center that gives you more time, and they simply just do the pathology, don't they? They you know take your bloods or they check your blood pressure and they you know, measure the belly and, and feel where the baby's lying and listen to the heartbeat and then maybe ask you how you're going. But you don't yeah. really have time to share much because then you're out the door. Yep. Mm. Which is, yeah. So you might have to get that from somewhere else if you haven't got a care provider who's providing that. You know, you might have to ask a doula to come on board or somebody who's going to actually explore things more deeply. Or you might not need that. You know, I know plenty of women who just go, I don't really need to have a connection with the midwife. Yeah. Um, I just want them to sort out anything that happens that I can't sort out. And, you know, that, that's fine with me. And also to consider who's going to be in your birth space and what they're bringing. Um, so when I used to, when I was in private practice at the 36 week appointment, 
I'd ask for everybody who was going to be in the birth space to be there and we'd just have a, okay, ask the woman, what are your expectations of this person? And ask the person, what, what do you think your role is? Because often they don't connect. You know, yeah. the, the woman's expecting something that the person, like her partner, mm. is like, whoa, I'm meant to be doing that. Oh, my God. So there's an allocation of roles and expectations. And to do that and to consider who you're bringing in and what their role is and what they're going to bring with them and why you've asked them. You know, why, what, what are they going to, how are they going to help you in your rite of passage during labor and birth? What's their role? And it might just simply be, you know, I think men, we've thrust men into this very, you know, historically woman only space, you know, birth was the collective culture of women mm. um, until it moved into hospital and it was disrupted through that to some extent, but it was, you know, the community of women would come together around birth and the woman's friends who would act as gossips, which is where that word gossip comes from, goddesses who were there mm. to witness the birth, would do all of the kind of emotional and practical support, looking after her children, you know, looking, caring for her. And the midwife, who would also be from the community, would be invited to kind of oversee was the term used, the cer- oversee the ceremony of childbirth. So she would, you know, t- tell them what to put in the cordial, which was the drink that the woman would make. But she would not be the one who was doing all of the emotional, physical supporting. She would be the one who would be there to kind of go, "Mm, this looks like it's going a bit off track. How about we try this? And would bring Mm. skills with her to manage variations and complications. That was her role, you know. And in those times of the wise woman, it would have been herbs and practical skills. Now it's Mm. medicine. Um, So that was... So it's about women really thinking about who's going to be there and what their what their role is. And if men are going to be there, um, women with male partners, just consider that this is this ancestrally has not been a space for men. That doesn't mean that they shouldn't be there. You know, mm-hmm. it's a, an amazing experience for fathers to see their babies born. But what do they need in order to be able to support the woman? Yeah. Do they need to, you know, do, and often men like a role, a really clear your job yeah. is. Yeah. You know the pool keep the pool at the right temperature or and permission that if you feel that you're getting anxious about what's happening you have permission to go mm. leave the room you know not be in that space you, that a man who's going to be expected to be the primary emotional supporter for a woman during labor that's a huge ask yeah. a huge ask actually for anybody who loves a woman mm. whether they're male or not um but for a man, it can be really outside of their experience as a man. Mm. And they can go into protect mode when, you know, the woman doesn't need protecting or fixing. Or So mm. if you're going to have your man there, you know, have a real conversation about what he needs to support him in order to support you. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so I guess cultivating self-trust, but also considering who's going to be in your space and what they're bringing. Yeah. And and to look at the, the postnatal period, which women often forget to look at. You know, what does that look like? How can you create some boundaries around that space for you to integrate with your baby and your new family? And what do you need, you know, physically? Mm. Um, do you want people to be leaving meals for you? setting all of that stuff up because that's when you're going to really you know need some help and support is after the baby's born birth just happens yes absolutely the postpartum is so forgotten so overlooked and it's almost bigger than the birth mm, the first bigger. time around yeah especially mm, yeah and i don't know about you but i feel like i've seen that more often than not that women are very overwhelmed and under supported in mm. in the postnatal space um obviously you know during her pregnancy she's being seen by the midwives and and during the birth and then she's kind of left to just fend for herself and in our society usually just her and her partner there's not that tribe of women that that was and a lot of women go into total postnatal depletion and mm. And uh, exhaustion and overwhelm. Yep. And what happens to a woman during her rites of passage, the messages that are transmitted to her reflect the culture. And the messages that we transmit to women is that the baby's the most important thing. 
Mm. Never mind you. You sacrifice yourself for the baby, a whole mother martyr. So in pregnancy, all the focus is on assessing the well-being of the baby. Yeah. You know, how are you affecting this baby? Is your blood pressure affecting the baby? It's all about the baby, baby, baby. In, you know, during birth, it's all about monitoring the baby, making sure the baby comes out safely, which is important. But, you know, the woman gets lost in that. Mm. We kind of, women have been erased from this significant rite of passage and, you know, and now just reproduces that the product is more important than the repro- the per- you know, person who produces the product, and the <laughs> experts in the ex- and the experts in the product are the people who remove the product from the body, which are the you know care mm. providers. It's that's that's often the messages that are being transmitted, and then in the postpartum period. Um, so in my book, I actually write about so each section I write about rites of passage from the past and what used to be happening and then what's happening now and why that's happening and Mm. whether it's evidence-based so in the integration phase which is the postnatal phase um it's it's interesting because if you look historically and globally there is very commonly um, a period of of exclusion from society so you go into the separation phase in early labor where you separate from your usual kind of interactions with other people in in space you go through this liminal phase where you kind of this between and betwixt state of mental state as well because you know you often have the altered state of consciousness and then you birth this baby and you're now into this integration phase which is all about mother and baby integrating as one and integrating back into society as a mother with Mm. with a baby and the baby integrating into society for the first time and there was really like kind of stringent rituals around that historically and often women would be um you know in a not and not stay in the birth environment for 30 days or more so for example in you know in europe it would be the lying in chamber and you'd have these really kind of strict rituals and ceremonies around you know you'd have the lying in chamber then you'd have these phases that the woman would go through one was called the up sitting where the gossips would arrive and help the woman sit up and with the baby and clean the bed and then she'd be able to get up and sit and walk around the room but not leave the room and so there's all this kind of very slow integration of mother back into her normal state which protected the mother and the baby because they were resting they didn't have people coming in and picking the baby up the babies were um, often considered to be in different cultures in a kind of real in-between state and really vulnerable mm. to spirits mm. etc so they would be protected um from any external you know people or spirits or anything else coming into that space and there was often this real um rituals that would be about abdominal massage and helping mm. the basically making the woman feel relaxed and oxytocin flow and helping her uterus contract down mm. um so there was all this this really intricate rituals that would be ongoing for you know usually 30 days after the birth of the baby mm. whereas in our modern birth culture the integration rites of passage so the rituals that are enacted are all around rushing the birth of the placenta you know rushing the mm. rushing the transition of the baby initially after birth you know, breathe 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 rushing the birth of the placenta mm. then you know qu- very quickly processing a woman through from birth suite to the postnatal ward to mm. home mm. that's it now you're back out there within you know now mm. it's a day a couple mm. of days and then that's it. Off you go. It's like a factory. Yeah. There's no honoring of that huge mm. transition during the integration of mother of this baby, you know, and, and just your body trying to get back to how it was, you know, never gets back to how it was. You, you know, your body, body transforming and recovering from the birth process, the baby recovering from the birth process and, and now having to get used to being in this external world with mm. different smells and sounds and there's no honoring of that. We just kind of stray into it. Yeah. Yeah. Totally agree. It's, it's really been lost, but it's starting to be reclaimed now. Women are starting to remember. I mean, generally women are starting to remember ceremony, ritual and traditional ways of women being together in circles and sharing and, and supporting and the tribe and women coming together. Um, so all these, this old knowledge is, kind of having a rebirth right now, I feel, through the modern woman remembering. Yes. Yeah. Probably because it's, you know, gone so far in in a very, you know, opposite direction of nourishing and loving the feminine and the woman and the life creatress that she is. 
So, yeah, I really, really agree. To me, the postnatal period is so important to prepare for and to, and to know about these ceremonies that are still practiced around the world. I mean, this is back in the day in Europe, but it still happens around the world in still traditional mm. cultures. And, yep. and so we can learn from them as well. Mm. Absolutely. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Rachel, for coming on my podcast and sharing your beautiful wisdom. And I know you have this new book out. Do you want to share with us what it's called and where we can find it? Oh, okay. So it's um, Reclaiming Childbirth as a Rite of Passage, um, Weaving Ancient Wisdom with Modern Knowledge. And it's it's basically, it's a, it's a reclaiming of, of knowledge, but within a modern context. So it's really looking at science, history, culture, anthropology, and, and weaving it through and all that evidence-based stuff I love. Cause I just think we've, we need to change the framework that we have at the moment for understanding birth is the stages of labor, which is bullshit. You know, here, here. there are no stages of labor <laughs> and it's so focused on just the cervix opening, which is like one small piece of the and it's all dependent on somebody assessing, you know, putting fingers in you to know wait. It's all wrong. Yeah. Um, so this is my well, I mean, I did this for my PhD in 2013, and then since I've kind of used it for a framework for teaching about birth physiology and you know the emotional needs of the woman um as well as the physiology. But it just it, putting that framework on allows you to look at not just what's happening hormonally and how that is working and the physiology, that kind of science bit, but also allows you to look at that transformative, emotional, spiritual, soul-based transformation that is also happening and the whole social and cultural influences on that. You know, it's just a, it's a framework that allows you to really kind of unpick birth and unravel it and, and then reclaim it and really looking at what, how, how what we do has changed what the evidence is around the things that we now do, like active management of the birth of the placenta, you know, the injection of the placenta, talk about what is the evidence of that? Why did that come about? Why, what's the evidence for it? Um, what used to happen, you know, and when you often, when you can see where things started and how they came about, it, it allows you to really see other ways of doing things and, and understand, you know, a student, I teach student midwives and they're it's always the well, why, why, why? So, which is why we start the, start the course. The first course is about history and the collective culture of women, and going way back to you know early humans. How did you, early humans birth? Um, and the first chapter in my book is her story, and it goes right from early humans through to you know the Middle Ages, through to the modern, through to the and it's really a very short space of time that we've had a modern birth culture like we have now. It's really, you know, it's what, 70s? That um, and kind of the evidence-based practice only came about in the 90s. But really, it's kind of 60s, 70s, where all birth was pretty much happening in hospitals. So we've got this real small part of history that's, that's heavily influencing what we're doing. And yeah. even though we've got research evidence saying, well, that's possibly not the best thing to be doing. We're in a situation where we're trying to prove with research evidence that it's all right to not do the things that were brought in before evidence-based practice ever came about, you know? Yes. So cord yes. cutting is a classic one. You know, they just decided let's cut the cord really early yeah. um, for a range of reasons without any evidence about it. In fact, evidence against it. And then, but because there's no research evidence, so we're now trying to get research evidence to show that it's all right to not cut the cord. Mm. But they never showed that it was all right to do it. So mm. that's kind of where we're at. So, yeah, so the book is the real exploration of um, birth culture, but also birth practices. Love it. I can't wait to read it. So where can I buy it? Oh, it will be in all the usual places. I don't know when this podcast will go out. It's um, at the proofreading point now, so... It depends how quickly things like Amazon get on board once it's released. <laughs> I will be, if people follow me on Midwife Thinking, I will be keeping everybody updated with <laughs> once it's once it's out there in the world. It's the, the baby's head is on view, but I need to push the baby out. Oh, it kind of needs to. Right. <laughs> Brilliant. We're through, we're through the transition phase, but um, and it's it's there. It just I just need to get it into. Amazon and all the places, but it will be available wherever you can buy books and awesome. from my website. 
Exciting. I can't wait for it to be available so I can read. I'm sure I'll find it so interesting and full of wisdom for sure. <laughs> so thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you for having me. It's been fun. It's been a pleasure having you. <laughs> Thank you for listening. If you love this podcast, then please share it. Grade it on iTunes and leave a comment. If you want to connect on social media, you can find me on Facebook as The Spiritual Midwife or on Instagram as The underscore Spiritual underscore Midwife. Thank you for listening.